Hey, hello, and welcome to the show. In this podcast, we put the spotlights in the fantastic King's College London community and the amazing work being done all across our institution. Our guests are academics, staff and students here at KCL and from our partners all across the collective industries we're collaborating with. That's right. Our guests are you. This is the King's Court with your host, David Sylvester. Let's do this. Roll credits. Welcome back to the King's Court, the show that puts the spotlight on the KCL community and the projects happening all across the university. It's really wonderful to have you back on the show. I hope you're listening. And if you're not, why aren't you? You should, please. I'm only partially begging. Uh, you, you probably figured out that we're doing this all remotely. So if the sound isn't crystal clear, then that's why. You know, uh, I got myself a cat about a month and a half ago. And uh, I forgot how difficult it is to have a cat, how crazy they are, and uh, how much of a penchant they have for climbing out of the roof and trying to die. So that was really fun uh, screaming and having to desperately get my cat back in. So uh, people, (laughs) be sure to have your windows on the latch. Anyway, we have a second guest on the show, and uh, I have to say, I'm, it's it's a real honour to have this uh, very very prestigious guest on the King's Court. Uh, he has one hell of a resume, quite frankly. He joined KCL in October 2013. He's the Vice Dean for External Relations of the Faculty of Natural and Mathematical Sciences professor and the head of the cybersecurity group of the department of informatics and a published italian playwright <laughs> amazing right without further ado here is professor luca vigano luca vigano please welcome to the king's court thank you very much david thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here with you oh, it's fantastic to have you here honestly it was uh, quite an achievement i found just reading your your brief resume of everything you do is it's really inspiring well, yeah, thank you. I, you know, I've been leading a double life for, for many, many years now. At night, some people transform into superheroes. I try to write plays and I've been doing that for, gosh, the last uh, 25 years or so. And it's, it's fun. It keeps me sane and it also helps me in what I do academically. So mm. uh, it's a good way to combine uh, a hobby and work. Perfectly put. I'm, I'm going to ask you a bit more about that later on as it goes. I mean, the first question, without further ado, is how, how are you? How are you doing? And, and where are you at this moment of time? I'm at home in London. Um, I'm actually reasonably fine. Um, of course, like everybody, um, I'm finding this quite challenging for uh, a number of reasons. But if I compare my personal situation with that of many people I know who have lost loved ones, who have lost their job, who are really struggling right now, 
my struggles seem very, very little in comparison. So uh, I think I'm obliged to say that I'm doing reasonably well. I have been personally in lockdown since March the 7th, and um, I've been at home since. Even though I love going to the office and I really miss it, I really miss the contact with my colleagues, with my PhD students, with the students in my in, my, in the modules that I teach, I can do much of my work remotely. And this has helped me keep me sane also because um, my partner has been in lockdown in Italy since uh, the end of February. She works there and we uh, speak and, and see each other on the computer several times a day, but also with family and everybody's thankfully doing fine. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a very, very small, but my own garden and, and spend some time there. I spent one hour on the exercise bike every day because I thought, well, at least I can compensate for the fact that I'm not going out. I'm not doing sports. I'm not just going to the office and maybe climbing the stairs of Bush House as a way to, to keep myself fit. So the bike is a good, uh, is a good compromise, is a good substitute. Um, and actually, I found that you know I can I can take my iPad and and do some reading or while I while I sit on the bike. It can be work, it can be a novel, it can be even some playwriting, and it does really help me to to find a break in the day. Especially being alone at home, it's important to have to have some some sort of routine where I distinguish between what is work and what is life. Mm. I saw a wonderful vignette the other day of somebody working at the computer and asking himself, well, uh, I don't remember if I work from home or if I live where I work, which is kind of the situation where we're all in right now. And it's important to find a way to to distinguish the two. I agree. I think it's quite necessary to have these uh, parameters of routine in our lives or else uh, we'll just descending to lethargy, unfortunately. Uh, which leads me on to my next question. What drew you towards working in academia and the field of cybersecurity as a whole in particular? I think what drew me to academia is curiosity. I've always been curious to find the reasons why. Mm. And that is, that is something that I believe is, is, is a common trait even for, for my playwriting and my hobbies to trying to reflect about the reasons why certain things are the way they are or why they can or can't be changed. And indeed, um, I did study in, um, in Italy, where I grew up, in Genova, in my hometown, and I did a degree in, um, in actually electronic engineering. But I soon found out that um, I was particularly interested in, uh, in mathematical logic and automated reasoning and AI. So I did actually transition into a PhD in computer science, where I investigated logics that allow one to reason about certain aspects of what surrounds us. So in a sense, you could call them even philosophical logics, not just mathematical logics. So, you know, logics that allow you to reason about uh, the fact that time flows in certain ways, or that you mm -hmm. can imagine the ways in which time can flow differently. The fact that you can reason about what is necessary, what is obligatory, what is possible, uh, allow you to reason about resources, about the fact that, you know, if you have a five pound bill, once you spend it, you don't have it anymore. And therefore, the picture of your world, the picture of your wallet actually changes because you have mm. given away that five pound note. So basically, that was my PhD, which was on a very uh, theoretical topic. And I really enjoyed that. It sounds very interesting. 
It is. And it, and it is something really at the intersection of philosophy, mathematics, and artificial intelligence. Uh, mm. maybe, maybe slightly the, the old fashioned artificial intelligence that used to be called automated reasoning, and it's still called automated reasoning, where you're basically trying to come up with tools that mimic the way you would reason. Mm-hmm. And, and once I finished my PhD, I thought, well, actually, I'd be interested to try and apply these techniques and logics that I had developed. Natural progression. Exactly. And, and, and security was uh, an obvious choice. First of all, because I always found it interesting myself, but also because end of the 90s, it was an up and coming topic in the sense that that is more or less the turning point when the internet became something really accessible to everybody. Definitely. And once... Once you have data which is accessible to everybody, you you need to protect it. Mm-hmm. Or once people put their data online, you need to protect it. So the transition into security was was kind of natural for me, and I found that then it is a fascinating subject because it is a subject that uh, that can be interesting for those who are really interested in the theoretical questions, but it can be also very uh, very challenging for those who are interested in the more practical questions. It sounds like a really interesting middle ground, quite frankly. Absolutely. And a very multidisciplinary one, because you cannot think about security without really thinking about the economical, the legal, the philosophical, the social implications, uh, the psychological Mm. implications, even in some cases. So I've been learning a lot, actually. So, you know, in addition to producing research, I've actually been learning a lot about psychology, philosophy, economics, because I need that in order to to be able to do my own research in security. I didn't realize how multi-tiered it was, what you're doing. So I'm, I'm loving hearing about this. Thanks for sharing it. Oh, my pleasure. I hope I can convey a little bit of the passion that I have for the subject. I'm feeling it for sure. Because, you know, ultimately, while I love theoretical work, and, and I still do a lot of theoretical work, what I find really gratifying is to be able to see how the work that you do can make a difference. Mm. Now, I'm not going to claim that my work is only applied, but the work that I've been doing on formalizing security systems and reasoning about them and discovering attacks and sharing these attacks with the developers of the solutions in order that they fix them and prevent new attacks from happening, that is tremendously gratifying. I can imagine. Going on to the topic of academic teaching, which you alluded to a bit there before, I know that King's is launching an advanced cybersecurity MSc online course, uh, which you've been working on with some of your colleagues. And uh, I'm interested to know, A, about the course, and B, uh, how you find the differentiation between doing lectures online and face-to-face. Like, How do you find that variation? Thank you very much for this question. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy and proud to be able to, to say a few words about our, our new online masters. We launched this new online masters in advanced cybersecurity uh, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. In fact, I developed the, the first module on cryptography um, and students have already completed that and done the first round of exams. And then the new modules will be rolled out in the next months. This is a completely online masters with all the modules being accessible to students online with uh, webinars taking place on a weekly basis to make sure that students have also a synchronous point of contact with the lecturers, not just the asynchronous points of contact where they download the material and they study it. Mm. 
And uh, it does mirror our face-to-face program. We do also have a master's in um, cybersecurity, uh, which is offered face-to-face, which is offered physically at King's. And we are very keen to to resume uh, teaching it physically at King's as soon as the, the scenario, the, the virus scenario allows us to do it. Uh, but there are fundamental differences. And um, perhaps the best way to explain the difference is to make an analogy with theater online. So in the last months, we have seen all the major theaters in the UK, but actually throughout the world, put online uh, recordings of their shows, of their performances, so that people can enjoy a little bit of uh, culture from home. And you can really see recordings of some fantastic shows by the National Theatre, by the Old Vic, by uh, the Royal Court, but also by a number of other smaller theatres, which I'm I'm thoroughly enjoying, the Soho Theatre, for instance, and many others. Mm. However, there is a fundamental difference. It is a recorded show. A show that was conceived to be performed in front of a live audience. So you will always feel that slight level of artificiality when you watch this recording. Yeah. This would be the equivalent as saying, you know, we teach a face-to-face lecture, but that lecture is recorded, which we do, by the way, to help our students revise and and study. Mm. But it is not a substitute for that. Yeah, it just loses some of the organic nature and energy, I'd imagine. Exactly. I'm a, I'm a musician, so I get the same thing entirely, because a lot of musicians are doing gigs now online and streaming that kind of thing. And basically, I, I just think it's the best possible equivalent you can have, but nothing will ever substitute that organic energy of feeling the room, basically. Unless, unless you go fully online. And that is what we did and what one does actually when one offers these online masters. So the online master that we offer is not just a recording of our standard face-to-face material. It wouldn't be good enough in that sense. Mm. You know, it's a study aid. It's great for our students, for instance, to have lecture captures, but they're not a substitute for the face-to-face lecture. In an online master, in particular in the online master that we developed, we reconceived the material knowing that it would only be consumed online. Interesting. So we have we have actually transformed the material. It's like saying, you know, you you change your you, the script of your play because you know you're not going to perform it live in front of an audience, but you're going to record it so that an audience can consume it asynchronously and then you have synchronous moments. And that, I believe, makes a huge fundamental difference, not just in the way we develop the material, but it also changes the experience for the students because they do really feel that this is material that has been produced to be consumed exactly in that way. And what I can say is that I thoroughly enjoyed preparing the material in that way. And if I now compare it, because I now have a a face-to-face version of my module and an online version of my module, yes, they talk about the same topics, but the way they present them, the way they engage the students is thoroughly different so that you, you can give online students a real experience that doesn't feel so 
it's just a recording of the face-to-face one. I did stand-up comedy, actually, for the first time in a couple of years, online in a Zoom conversation. So what you're saying very much resonates with me because I was able to do something on camera that I wouldn't have been able to do on stage, which was walking away from the camera, disappearing, having a conversation with multiple parties all played by myself, and then coming back on screen being someone else. These are things I couldn't have done on stage. So what you're saying, I very much like because I, I just think a key word there is optimization. You're optimizing the experience online, and, and instead of kind of focusing on what you can't do in person, you're you're maximizing what you can do not in person, so to speak. That's exactly it. You 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 need to know your audience, and you need to optimize for your audience. And the same thing you can do for a lecture, because ultimately delivering a good lecture does require a little bit of showmanship. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of parallels between uh, being a lecturer in academia as well, you know, just to convey the information in a very palpable sense that captivates people, Uh, which leads me to my next question. Uh, It's a bit of a long one, but I I think it's very much in your field. The, The fact that we're all online at the moment with social media connecting us throughout this bizarre time. Uh, more so than before, though not without criticism. Uh, For instance, Facebook has drawn the ire of its own staff with with resignations due to no regulations of fact-checking on politically driven posts, uh, like Twitter did for President Donald Trump. And we've seen a huge spike in the engagement uh, due to both the international pandemic and the current civil rights protests worldwide. I know that you yourself are quite active on social media, and I'm, I'm just interested to know what your views are on social media platforms as a whole. I find social media very interesting. So uh, for many years, I did not want to engage for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, because I was well aware of the security pitfalls and security issues, mm. but also because um, I was not interested to engage socially in that way. Uh, in the last few years, I've, I've changed my mind. Well, I haven't changed my mind about the security issues. They're still there. But I find it fascinating because suddenly it's a way to share information, but also to understand how misinformation is shared. Mm, For sure. I'm I'm particularly fascinated, for instance, by the movements uh, against 5G uh, networks and and 5G Mm. uh, cellular technology in general. What I find interesting is that often people just share these views because they believe they're right without taking the time to actually fact check them. It's very easy to do. Absolutely. You know, it's just a click of a button. <laughs> Literally just one click. Exactly. So in a sense, I I find social media interesting because they are, they are witness to the fact that expertise is about to die. Mm. Uh, because I, I often make a joke with my students. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly old, but I'm old enough to remember the birth of the internet. Me too, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and I had one of the first email addresses at the University of Genoa, my hometown and everything. And I, and I do. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, I, I do make the following joke to my students. And I tell them, you know, I'm old enough to remember when I had to walk for five miles to go online. Because for me, going online meant, you know, leaving my house in Genova, well, my parents' house in Genova, taking a bus or driving to my university, which was actually in another part of town, so that I could sit in front of a computer. And then if the the bandwidth managed to support it, I could connect 
and I could send the very first emails and I could access the very first examples of web pages. Mm. Nowadays, I'm sitting at home and I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven devices in front of me, including my uh, my TV and a soundbar that also allows me to connect to some home assistant with which I can access the internet. It's crazy, isn't it? it it's, it's fantastic on one way, you know, because suddenly, uh, you know, you have immediate access to a wealth of information that you really were not able to access unless you had a library card and you went to the library and hopefully the book that you wanted to check was still there and nobody had checked it out and you could read it up. Nowadays, you can access much of that information really by just activating your phone or your tablet or your computer or whatever. Well, even the phone itself is basically the amalgamation of about six different devices. It's fantastic in that sense. Um, it always makes me wonder whether uh, our perception is not completely wrong on the other hand, because the digital divide, so the fact that a large portion of the world doesn't actually have access to the to these media, to the to a phone or to an internet connection, is going to split our world into two classes even further. And there are many socio-political worries there. Uh, but it also means that much in the same way as you can consume information, so as you can download information, now everybody is able to actually upload that information. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be a bit more challenging to do it, say, on Wikipedia or on other platforms where there is a fact-checking, but for social media, it's actually very easy to make a post and write it in such a way that people will believe that it is the opinion of an expert. Well, there's a fascinating quote. Now, forgive me for not remembering who said it, but it said it's easier, far easier to lie to people than to convince them that they've been tricked. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of social media right now. I mean, you know, there is a, a very famous semiologist called Umberto Eco, a countryman of mine, many years ago wrote that the internet is going to give a voice to the to the dumb people in the village. <laughs> well, that was prophetic, wasn't it? Absolutely, which is exactly what is happening. Now, is this a bad thing? Yes and no. So what I always tell the people who ask me, and I go back now to, to the first part of your question, what about the security of social media? Well, I tell them, you know, it's, it's not so much a matter whether they're secure or not, whether you have privacy or not. What I think is the fundamental question is, are you aware? of the fundamental insecurity, of the fundamental lack of privacy in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. That is why, you know, as, as a person doing research in security, I, I can give you my, my personal views. Uh, you know, if somebody asks me, if one of my friends, one of my family members asks me, should I use this, uh, this app or not? Should I use this media uh, or this medium or not? I can give them my personal view. But my, what, what I really find fascinating is the fact that my view or my expert view is then going to be filtered by their own prejudice and by their own conceptions, by their own uh, perception of what is relevant and what is dangerous and what it is not. And I've stopped fighting that in the sense that, you know, um, I don't think that my role as a security expert is only to give advice. You know, I can tell you, 
there are certain apps that you really don't want to use. Uh, and I can give you evidence for that. But I think that my role is to try and make sure that you, and with you, I mean, whoever is asking me a question, gets all the evidence in front of them so that they can actually revisit maybe some of the prejudices. So some in, really in the sense of judgment form beforehand and really say, okay, now that I know this, I consciously decide to reveal so much information about myself as I'm actually doing. In a sense, if you want, I, I see my role, I'm going to be very, very, very arrogant and preposterous here, but it's kind of a role of an evangelist, trying to make sure that people understand what they are doing. Then I don't have the presumption to tell them exactly what they should be doing. I do really hope that they form their own views based on the evidence that I'm giving them. Honestly, I think I'm failing. And I think that many of the security experts are failing because we don't see an improvement in online behavior. On the contrary, perhaps the situation, the fact that we are all uh, or most of us are at home and most of us are in front of a computer uh, for a large amount of time every day has only worsened the situation. But um, I, I want to be slightly optimistic and say that perhaps um, we will not get out of this better, but we will not get out of this virus in a, in a much worse state than when we started from. Which leads me very succinctly to the next question. Uh, the fact that we're using a lot of uh, conference apps like Skype, Google Hangouts, WhatsApp, House Party, and Zoom, which has definitely come to prominence, uh, but it's been accused of being very unsafe because it's not encrypted from end to end. And basically, uh, just alluding to what you said in your last answer, which apps I'm interested to know would you say definitely don't use and which ones would you maybe say are the safest? That, that, that is very interesting to me. So I've been using Zoom for years now, uh, much in the same way as I've been using Skype and Google Handouts and, uh, and also WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram and a number of other apps. What is interesting is that the pandemic has, of course, accelerated the use of these apps. So much so that many of them were completely unprepared for their sudden success. Mm. Zoom is a perfect example of that. You know, Zoom has been around for, for, for a long time now. I had no idea. A few years ago, for sure. Uh, but I remember having meetings, occasional meetings on Zoom, especially with my US colleagues. Mm. And I knew that Zoom, much, much like actually many of these other apps initially did not provide the form of encryption that you would need. Uh, and in particular, there has been now quite a lot of discussion about the fact that Zoom, contrarily say to Teams, uh, Microsoft Teams, does not provide end-to-end -end encryption. Now, what is end-to-end -end encryption? It is an encryption that goes uh, from speaker one to listener two. So if Alice and Bob are talking with each other, the data that Alice sends to Bob, when Alice speaks, this is encrypted until it reaches Bob where then the decryption occurs. Mm. So nobody in between Alice and Bob can actually read this data, can actually see this data. Can't do anything with it, okay. They cannot access it. So you can always do a denial of service, you know, you can jam it, you can block the connection, but you cannot listen in, in that sense. Gotcha. Now Zoom, the Zoom team have promised that they're working on it. And, and, and it's, I find it very interesting because uh, at King's, we are predominantly using 
Microsoft Teams. Uh, this is because we're using Office 365 as part of our uh, of our uh, standard distributions, and and Microsoft Teams, which is in a sense an evolution of Skype business, is providing end-to-end encryption. On the other hand, Zoom has a number of features that Microsoft Teams doesn't have. So there are big questions there that we will need to tackle in the next months. Uh, for instance, we will need to see which of these platforms really has the time to scale up and provide the kind of security guarantees that are required to be deployed more massively. Mm. But uh, we also need to be well aware of what we're using them for. So I remember when uh, when the current government, so when the Johnson cabinet first held uh, a meeting over Zoom, uh, number 10 posted a picture online showing uh, a Zoom screenshot of the prime minister and several of the ministers connected over Zoom. And that picture was posted by them. I took that picture and I posted on my uh, on my Twitter account and asked my students, can you spot at least five security vulnerabilities in that picture? Oh, nice. And there were more than five, actually. What is interesting is that not all of these vulnerabilities were the fault of Zoom itself. Mm-hmm. Many of them were the fault of the users who were really using the tool in the wrong way. And this is something that I want to make people aware of. You know, even with Teams, even with Hangouts, even with WhatsApp or, or Signal or Telegram, which are to, tools and apps that do provide stronger encryption, so end-to-end encryption with uh, keys that are uh, long enough not to be broken or guessed very easily. The way you use these tools can introduce vulnerabilities. For instance, you and I could set up a Teams meeting uh, and I could invite you. You could easily take that invite and send it to a third party and that third party can join our conversation without me knowing. Mm-hmm. Well, I would notice, of course, but you know there is no 100% security guarantee because otherwise we would all be using only that one tool which does provide 100% security guarantee. Yeah. So what I always tell my students and, and whoever asks me for advice is, well, do spend a little bit of time to understand which are the security features that the app provides and then decide based on that. If you are unsure, then try to go for apps that really provide a higher level of uh Guarantee, for instance, Telegram is certainly much more secure than many of the other messaging apps that are uh, currently available. Telegram, yeah, Telegram, which is uh, which is an app where very similar to WhatsApp in a sense. But what is important is that we also realize that sometimes we actually don't need that level of security because you know if I'm if I'm just talking to a friend, it's totally fine to use. Uh, Facebook's Messenger, for instance, or or similar connections. Um, so it's really important that we understand when to use a particular technology and also monitor it to make sure that we understand if there are any changes. For instance, Zoom, they have promised that at least for the pro version, they will provide end-to-end encryption very soon. And then that will make Zoom more appealing than other than other similar conferencing tools that don't have so many features as Zoom. Mm-hmm. So it's an evolving market. And you know, we must I really want to stress the fact that up to three months ago, uh, these were 
specialist tools. Yeah. Now, many of these tools are used for the education of our kids, for our own teaching, for a number of other meetings that originally were face-to-face. Three months in the lifetime of, of an app like this is a very short amount of time, so they will need a little bit of time to catch up. That's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, they just uh, probably didn't know it was going to explode, quite frankly. Exactly. This leads me on to the next uh, segment of the show, which is something we like to call up close and personal. Basically, now I just want to get to know you a little bit better. Moving uh, maybe a tad away from the security line of questioning and to talk more about the fact you're a playwright. You've had a, a number of plays published in Italy. And so basically, what made you want to become a playwright? I'm very interested to know. Well, I think I am the, the product of my parents. So my mother is a computer scientist. Uh, she's in their mid eighties, but she's still working. Uh, she's crazy that way. I love her that way, but you know, she keeps herself busy. Mm. And at their place in Italy, uh, she still has a number of, of punch cards, a block of punch cards that she used to program the, the very first computers that she worked on. Wow. Yeah. So that's, that's a computer science side of me. Uh, my father, besides being a history and philosophy high school teacher, he uh, also worked and is still working as a theater and movie critic. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> so I grew up in a household. I'm a single child. I grew up in a household where, you know, uh, Going to the movies and theater was something that you did several times a week because my mother loves that as well. Uh, but also where we had um, a computer as soon as there was one uh, that, that could be brought home. So um, I think you could say I was kind of undecided which, which career to choose, or I loved them both. So I've been trying to keep both alive for the last uh, 30 years or so. You've done a pretty amazing job of combining them. Yeah, and, and you know, it's something that, that started for me, the love of theater started in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a theater company in high school. I, I tried to act, but I suddenly realized, and people were very quick to tell me that it was not really something I should pursue. Um, but, uh, but then I decided, okay, what if instead of having the usual sketch shows at the end of the year, you know, where the high school theater company puts up a show about, about life in, at school, yeah. uh, I actually tried my, uh, my best to write a uniform play that we could, or a single play that we could produce. And I had the huge luck of, um, encountering, um, a teacher, a German teacher, uh, I went to a German school in Italy, by the way. So I did, it's a school where you learn German, uh, but you also learn English as a third language and French and Latin. And you do also a lot of maths and everything. So it's in it. Yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful school. And I, I keep thanking my parents every day that they sent me to that school. And I had a, a, a teacher who was in charge of the theater uh, group of the school who actually allowed me to do that. And that was fantastic because I was. 17 and i wrote my first play which by the way is terrible uh, but it doesn't matter <laughs> they usually are yeah exactly it doesn't matter we had a lot of fun and so i started writing uh, i could get off stage which was better for everybody including myself and i started writing and i started also directing um and and when i finished school i was approached by an amateur theater company in my hometown in genova uh, if i wanted to direct 
uh, a play that they were uh, putting on. They were producing Mousetrap, so Agatha Christie's Mousetrap. Mm-hmm. So I did that uh, for a year. I acted as a director. Then the year after, we we put on um, The Real Inspector Hound by Tom Stoppard, which is kind of a parody of, uh, of Mousetrap. But then I decided, yes, I love that acting, but what I really want to do is write. And, and I've been doing that. Uh, of course, I, it's not my main job. I'm quite slow, but uh, over the last uh, 25 years, I've written 10 full plays. And I've been blessed enough to have many published, but also many produced by, by theaters in Italy. Mm. Genova, my hometown, has a theater which is considered number two or number three in Italy. Not bad at all. Yeah, it's fantastic. And they were crazy enough to produce two of my plays. Mm seeing them on stage for, for a month with with a live audience and with an audience that actually liked the plays, which which is not always the case. That always helps. <laughs> exactly. It always helps. Um, I've had plays produced by other companies which were not that good. And, and to be honest, much of the fault was mine because one thing is are the words on the paper and another thing are the words in the mouths of the actors on a stage. So um, mm. it, it is a strange medium to write, you know. Um, you suddenly realize that um, you're not writing a novel, but you're writing dialogue for people to actually speak out. For human beings. I study performing arts, so I vibe with what you're saying completely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you know, I've been, I've been blessed with, um, with, with quite a lot of success in that direction. I've even been translated into Russian. <sighs> which is fantastic. Nice. And I've had a couple of my short plays also produced in pubs here in London. And that for me is just an appetizer towards me conquering the West End at some point. Mm, The delicious main course. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And who knows? Exactly. I I read that you use plays, movies, novels, pop culture, and artworks in your modules on cryptography and security with students, which... uh, I think it's a very interesting and refreshing approach. And please, if you could discuss what kind of things you use to implement this, because I, I think that's a wonderful marriage of two of your passions in one now. It is. And for me, it's a way to have fun, but it's also a way to teach. It's also pedagogically very important. And and, and actually, uh, students really like that. So what I do is the following. Typically, I teach cryptography, which is a... I mean, I love it, but it's it's quite a dry module. There is a lot of mathematics. There is a lot of number theory. Uh, there are a lot of calculations that you need to make, and it can be it can be tough. So, um, what I try to do is I try to to find ways to convey the intuitive meaning about things that we are we're learning in the module through popular culture. Now, there are lots of movies about hackers, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of TV series, for instance, there was Mr. Robot, there are, the, you know. Oh, yeah, I finished watching season three of that. Yeah, and you know, that, that is quite well done in the sense that much of the, much of the hacking is, is doable, is real hacking. Whereas there are a number of other movies where the hacking that takes place is, is completely absurd. I mean, there is no way that somebody could do that. Uh, one wonderful example is uh, uh, Swordfish, where uh, Hugh Jackman plays a hacker who has uh, 60 seconds to, uh, and uh, with a gun pointed to his head, to actually break a cipher, which is in a, uh, essentially almost unbreakable. So, and, and of course, he manages. No, no pressure then. No pressure, but of course, he manages because the plot needs to advance. <laughs> so, I don't use those moves. What I what I try to do 
is I try to, to show the, the arcane in the mundane. So what I try to show that actually many of the concepts that we, that we talk about, you know, privacy, confidentiality, integrity, anonymity, they're concepts that we're all very well familiar with in our daily life. And several of the solutions that mathematicians and computer scientists and engineers have developed over the years to actually provide them are based on solutions that we actually use in real life. Let me give you one very simple example, which is the example that I always use at the beginning of my lectures. You might remember the movie Spartacus by Stanley Kubrick mm -hmm. with Kirk Douglas playing uh, the Spartacus character who is a gladiator slave who rebels against the Romans. He the great liberator. Exactly. He, he, he assembles an army of rebels. They, they fight against the Romans and they lose. And, 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 Kirk Douglas, and who plays Spartacus, and Tony Curtis, who plays his right-hand man, and a number of the other slaves have been captured. Now, the Romans have a problem. They don't know who actually Spartacus is. So they want somebody of the captives to identify Spartacus or the body of Spartacus so that they can make an example out of him. And they say, all you others who are sitting on the hill who are our captives, you will be spared the penalty of crucifixion if you tell us who Spartacus is. Now, what happens? Kirk Douglas, who is the hero, stands up and tries to say that he is Spartacus, but before he can speak, Tony Curtis stands up as well and says, I'm Spartacus. And suddenly all of the rebels stand up and say, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. And actually, it's a wonderful piece of screenwriting by Dalton Trumbull. It's iconic. Exactly, because the only one who doesn't speak is the real Spartacus. Okay, And I show this clip to my students, and then I tell them, what, what did just happen? And I make them think about it, and we start a discussion, and suddenly, slowly, they realize that the reason why they're doing that is to protect Spartacus. Because if everybody says, I'm Spartacus, then... Everybody could be Spartacus, so the Romans cannot distinguish with certainty the real Spartacus from any of the other captives. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the basis of our systems for anonymity. The online systems for anonymity, whether you're sending an email or you're participating in a chat or doing whatever you're doing online, they don't work by providing anonymity in isolation. You cannot be anonymous in isolation. What you need is a crowd of people, of actions occurring at the same time so that an observer cannot distinguish you from somebody else. A blank face in the crowd. Exactly. So Dalton Trumbo in the 60s defined anonymity the way we actually can mathematically define it today when we look at anonymity systems like onion routing and similar other, uh, other systems. So I use these movies and they range, there are lots of cartoons that I use. I even use an episode of Peppa Pig. Uh, <laughs> where, where they, where they create a secret club and they suddenly invent one-time passwords. And I use these examples to make sure that the students understand the idea behind the mathematics mm. so that then can, uh, they can appreciate the mathematics even more. And, and you were saying that this is fascinating. And indeed, I found out. So I've been doing that for, for 20 years because it came natural for me. Mm. But 
I started doing research and I found out that there is a whole discipline on how to use, especially movies, to teach certain topics. In particular, movies are very often used to teach philosophy, to teach management and business, and there are lots of examples. So what I've done, being the curious researcher that I am, I've actually started writing scientific papers about this. So I've just published a paper on how you can actually use movies and popular artworks to explain some cybersecurity notions. I'd like to read this paper. I'd be very happy to send it to you. It's actually on, on my webpage. But, uh, uh, but what I can also tell you is that King's has been instrumental in that because King's has, has, a, um, uh, has a funding scheme called King's Together. And uh, where, where people like me can, can submit short proposals for seed funding projects, you know, they give you a little bit of money uh, to convey a number of workshops with uh, like-minded researchers to start working on an idea that you can then transform into something bigger. Mm. So I've written a couple of papers and I've applied for one of those Kings, uh, Kings Together projects and I've received the funding. And I'm now leading a project that is about to finish called Cryptoculture 3.0 where we're trying together with people from the Psychology Institute, from uh, Arts and Humanities, from Digital Humanities, from War Studies, uh, from Informatics and Engineering, of course, uh, from uh, Linguistics. We're working together on trying to transform these initial papers that I've written into something a bit bigger that we can put in as a larger grant proposal to try and get some funding to explore this further. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to say this because King's is, is, is fairly unique in that sense for this kind of multidisciplinary ambition. And, uh, and I'm having lots of fun, you know, trying to, uh, to find novels which we can use as examples of certain cybersecurity notions or even cybersecurity solutions. I'm now focusing, for instance, on the Three Musketeers, where there is quite a lot to be learned in terms of security. Mm, that's uh, that's fantastic to know, and it's funny you say that because they're actually. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but they're they're bringing out the Dogtanian, uh, a remake of that kids' TV series of when I was a child. So that's coming out shortly as well. I remember that as well. Yes. Yeah, Dogtanian and the Musket Hounds. So it was fantastic. Yes. Yeah, I, I love that show. I was a big uh, Paul Fuss fan. I really, I really appreciate that, and it's good knowing that Kings does that. Uh, because it, it was quite frankly, it was just riveting for me to listen to you talk about all of those uh, connecting and unifying aspects, which actually leads me on to our next round of the show, which is a segment called Let's Talk. And today we're going to talk about drama. And obviously, as it's been aforementioned now, you're a big fan of uh, art in uh, many forms, especially theatre, movies, and literature. And uh, it's, it's clear that that's your passion amongst other things. So I'm very interested to know. Uh, first of all, tell me, tell me some of your favourite plays. That's a tough question. That's why I say plays, because just saying one is ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it changes day by day. Um, so. Um, I'm a big Shakespeare fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's. I think it's impossible uh, to be a playwright and not be unavoidable, and very rightfully so. Uh, I mean, the man or the men or whoever wrote under the pseudonym of Shakespeare uh, were were really really good. Uh, and then I would say, 
I mean, I'd be tempted to say Hamlet, but that's kind of easy in a sense, because there are many reasons why Hamlet is one of the most important, if not the most important play ever written, uh, at least in modern times. Mm. Um, and, 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 and Peter Brook and, and Harold Bloom have written magnificently about it. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very partial to, to Richard III and to, Ma- to the Scottish play, I should say, to Macbeth. Mm-hmm. I can probably say I've seen more than 10 productions of each. Uh, in different languages. Well, um, I remember, I remember uh, seeing Hamlet in Lithuanian once. Niche. It was fantastic. Uh, it was, uh, even though I could not understand a single word, I knew what they were saying, of course. Yeah. Uh, but it was really fantastic. I, I, I listen to a lot of foreign music and I, I watch a lot of different uh, foreign programs. So I, I, I find it fascinating because obviously it goes towards the point that people say that I think uh, communication is what, 65% uh, nonverbal? So it's all the sounds and the gestures. So yeah, that, that must have been riveting to watch. I, I mean, I remember that particular production, which was, which was really, really great. Um, then I'm a big fan of Anton Chekhov and all his plays, I think that probably my favorite there is Ivanov or Ivanov, depending on which pronunciation is correct, I never know. But I also really like Uncle Vanya. So uh, I would say these are uh, certainly two of my favorite plays of his. And then probably my all-time favorite, if, if I talk about feeling rather than intellect, is Georg Büchner, the German playwright who wrote Wojtek, and who wrote Danton's Death, mm-hmm. who is a fantastic playwright who died, if I remember correctly, when he was 23. Jeez. But he managed, he managed to write at least three full plays, Leons and Lena. Well, actually, Wojciech is uh, not fully complete, but, uh, you know, really, really fantastic. Mm-hmm. If I look at modern playwrights, it's uh, difficult not to talk about Tom Stoppard. And I very gladly talk about him. You know? <laughs> I th- still think that, how crazy as it may sound, uh, Rosenkrantz and Gilderstein are dead is, is my favorite play of his, mm-hmm. uh, just because how tongue in cheek it is, but also how clever it is. But there are many, many fantastic modern playwrights. Uh, I love Martin McDonough. Um, I love Jess Butterworth, um, Conan McPherson as well. Um, I've had the fortune of translating actually some of these plays because I also worked as translator for for the theater of genova once in a while translating from german and english into italian mm-hmm. so uh i also translated for instance a play by ethan cohen uh one of the two cohen brothers uh who wrote a play called offices which was a lot of fun to translate i didn't um, even know the cohen brothers did theater there you go uh, well only 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 ethan only ethan joel uh, has not been involved with with theater as far as i know even though i just read that he is directing a version of macbeth so you know they they certainly are interested in theater and of course i also love the the old greeks i yeah i study classics so i'm a big fan medea that's a classic yeah. oedipus exactly. timeless yeah and that leads me to my next question, actually, which is favorite films. There must be a few. There are. I can tell you my three, my four favorite movies because it's very difficult to order them. Yeah, well, in no particular order. The Searchers by John Ford. I am a huge fan of Westerns. Uh, it's also because of my upbringing, because a very good friend of my father had uh, had a small movie theater in 
in Genova, similar in spirit to the Prince Charles movie theater in Leicester Square. Mm. The Westerns were quite popular in Italy in the 70s, weren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm a fan of classic Westerns. I'm not a fan of Italian Westerns, I must say. I'm not a huge fan of Sergio Leone. Uh, but John Ford, absolutely. And The Searchers, it's very reminiscent of, of Shakespeare's tragedies, in a sense. Mm. Then I'm a huge fan of The Godfather. Okay. Part one, part two, and part three, which is not as good as the first two, obviously, but no, it's still yeah. quite a good movie. And, and Coppola has done a huge number of, uh, of movies that I love. Rumble Fish, for instance, is another huge favorite of mine, and Dracula and everything. And it's fitting to say these days where there is the uh, 45th anniversary, I'm a huge fan of Jaws by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm a huge fan of that movie is not the horror part. I, I don't actually find it very interesting. Like, I don't find the shark itself particularly interesting. But I do find the dynamics on the boat. So when uh, when the three main characters go on the boat called Orca to hunt the shark, uh, that is that is really a wonderful piece of cinema, both in terms of writing, in terms of acting and directing. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth movie that I have absolutely to to mention is The Apartment by Billy Wilder. Mm. Uh, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. I'm trying to think if I've seen that. Uh, it's a fantastic movie in black and white where uh, basically Jack Lemmon, who is secretly in love with Shirley MacLaine, is forced by his employee to actually give to the employee his apartment so that the employee can have an affair with Shirley MacLaine in Jack Lemmon's apartment. Conflict of interest. Absolutely. It's a wonderful movie. It's, it's, it's a love story in a sense. It's, it has a happy ending, but it's a wonderful movie in terms of writing and directing and acting. So, and, mm. uh, but there are many, many more movies that I could cite. I mean, it's difficult not to talk about Ernst Lubitsch. It's difficult not to talk about Tarantino. It's difficult not to talk about the Coen brothers. Uh, the man with no name. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic black and white movie with, uh, you know, one actually, you're totally right. One one of my favorite movies. How could I have forgotten it? Fantastic. Uh, I'm a big fan, as you as you have probably noticed. Oh, it's, I used to work in a video shop, so I, I love hearing all of this stuff, honestly. Ah, fantastic. And that, that leads me to uh, the final segment of the show, which is something we like to call... What? Wonder! Wonder! Yeah, so Word Wonder is basically a word association game, and I'm going to say one singular word, and I want you to say the first word that comes to your mind in retort to that. Okay. Okay, and, well, are you you ready for the Word Wonder, my friend? I am ready. Let's do it. Okay. Security. Challenge. Theater. Passion. Drama. Fun. Performance. Difficult. Encryption. Interesting. Conference. Fun. Art. Fantastic. Vision. Necessary. Leadership. Useful. London. Fun. Okay, wonderful. That's basically the end of the show. So I've just got a few uh, questions for you just on top of that. And the first one is going to be, 
What what are you going to do when you come back when we uh, seemingly get back to some semblance of normality? What are you looking forward to doing? I look forward to, to looking people in the eye and not through a, through a screen. <laughs> here, here. So uh, I, I love going to the office and, and, and I love being around people. I do really miss my colleagues. I miss my students. I miss... Uh, I do even slightly miss being packed in the tube at rush hour, uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> a little bit. Because I do miss going out and being among people, and of course, I miss uh, I miss hugely being in a, in a in a movie theater or in a theater with the lights out and and watching some something happen in front of me, but surrounded by people. Mm, I'm with you completely there. We've we've missed so much of the. Uh, just normal human interaction we all took so for granted. Absolutely. And as I said at the beginning, you know, I can do my work in this way, but I think it's so much better in the, in the other way. I think it's the same reason that children go to school and they're not homeschooled because the interaction, the experience is a, a lot of Absolutely. reasons that shape people. Absolutely. Where can we follow you uh, and stay up to date with what you're doing? Well, I'm present on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and, and, and Instagram, uh, even though I don't uh, post as much as uh, as I should, uh, probably. Uh, I also have my more institutional web pages. I even have my own website, uh, lucavigano.com, which I must say I haven't really updated in ages now. Uh, but there you can also find pointers to some of my papers, to some of my students, to some of the work that I do, but also pointers to my uh, my playwriting side. You can find some of my scripts and everything. Fantastic. And uh, well, all I can say now is Luca Vigano, thank you so much for coming onto the King's Court. Uh, I've had a fantastic time picking your brain. And uh, if you don't mind, we'd love to have you back on the show at some point. I'd love to. I had a lot of fun. Uh, as you can probably notice from the fact that I repeated the word fun three times in the word <laughs> association, uh, I did really enjoy our chat. And I think that this is a fantastic initiative. And I look forward to listening to the new shows, but also coming back as soon as you will want me to. Fantastic. Honestly, it's, it's been a genuine pleasure and honor for me. And uh, I want to read the article that, that you posted as well, because that's, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm going to stop gushing now. Uh, Luca Vigano, thank you for coming to the King's Court, and you may now leave. Thank you very much. Take care. See you later. Well, that was Luca Vigano, everyone. I have to say that was an absolute honor to have Luca on the show. Uh, I can't wait to have him back on. That was fantastic. And it's really good to know uh, the amount of different things that's happening at King's, uh, the, the, the multifaceted nature of what's happening, and, and knowing that gifted minds from so many departments are working together and we're going to put all of the information and relevant links on our site at the end so you can see everything that might take your fancy and you know just just we want to hear from you we want to hear your stories uh you know maybe you want to be a guest maybe you have someone that would be a great guest Ultimately, we want to speak to you, share your stories, share the people who interest you, share the people that inspire you, share the pictures that inspire you. We want to hear from you at the King's Court because you're what matters. And if you want to speak to us, the King's Court DS at gmail.com. That's our email address. At the King's Court DS is our Twitter handle, and we're going to have an Instagram soon. And uh, yeah, I'd say that's about the end of the show. Uh, in this time, my cat has returned uh he's rolled up on the couch and 
probably thinking about how he can jump out of the window again. So without further ado, I want to leave you some parting words. In the end, we only regret the chances we didn't take. We'll see you next time, and keep on trucking.